0: God judges the nations for evil and at the same time uses that evil to accomplish his good purposes. It's it's a real high thing to grasp. So tune out distractions and be prepared to think deeply this morning. This is the God of the universe who is and was and always will be and created everything out of nothing by His Word, we should expect deep and high and mighty things when we learn from Him. Things beyond our comprehension. And this is one of of those truths. And yet you'll find that if you humble yourself, it will bring you great peace great peace and satisfaction and cause you to deepen your love for God and your awe of Him and His ways. The prophet Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom, but God used him to prophesy things about the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. He prophesied from the year 739 to 686 he was born into a what we think a, a family of nobility. He was well-connected, highly educated. The book of Isaiah is amazing in its literary form, in its vocabulary. No other book of the Bible has such a wide vocabulary. M- much of what he prophesied was written in poetic form. So not only with great depth of understanding, but incredibly skilled as a poet. He had access to the king in Judah. His prophecies, many of them were fulfilled in his lifetime, either partially or full, and then many of his prophecies would be fulfilled later but it vindicated and authenticated his prophetic office. Remember the book of Deuteronomy tells us how do you know a prophet's a true prophet of God? What he says must come to pass. All of it. And he would make no mistakes. That's how you know a false prophet. And so for those in our modern era who claim to be a prophet, keep an eye on their prophecies. If they don't come to pass, they're a false prophet. Tradition states that at the, eventually the wicked king Manasseh had Isaiah executed, sawed in half with a wooden saw. Because Isaiah refused to tell kings what they wanted to hear. He was a true prophet. He spoke the words of God, even if they were unpopular or unpleasant, even if they were a rebuke to Israel's leadership. And you know, in the New Testament, Jesus said, and Stephen, the first martyr, told the Pharisees and Sadducees, You're just like your forefathers, you murder the prophets. And Isaiah was one of those prophets that was murdered. Here's some historical background just to catch us up. Remember last week we looked at the fall of the northern kingdom under the hands of the Assyrian Empire. Interestingly, when you look at God's sovereign hand in all of this history, remember Jonah preached to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, somewhere between 800 and 760 BC. And Nineveh repents. If they hadn't repented, God would have destroyed them, and Assyria would never have come and conquered the northern kingdom. So we're already confronted with a bit of a conundrum. So are you saying that the Bible reveals that God sent a prophet to Nineveh to call them to repentance, granted them repentance, so he could raise them up to eventually be the tool he uses to chastise his own people? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying the Bible teaches. Now, they don't become this powerful empire overnight, and while they are weak, the northern kingdom becomes strong, the northern kingdom, Israel. Under the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel grows strong economically, politically, but the whole Nation's a mess, morally, theologically. They're idolatrous. Corruption proliferated throughout the land. In fact, we said last week that we could say that the reason God punished Israel was for their bad theology. And we said last week don't think of theology as this little category that is for church or a Bible study or what the pastor does during the week to prepare for a sermon. Theology is what you believe about God, and what you believe about God, who He is and what He does, encompasses all of reality, all of life. Don't think for a second that you're not responsible for theology. Everybody is doing theology every second of your life. The question is, are you doing good theology or bad theology? If you're getting your theology from the Bible and you're interpreting the Bible correctly, you're thinking good theology. And if you're obeying what you read, you're doing good theology. You're trusting and obeying. Nobody's theology is perfect except God's, He can't have bad theology. Whatever he thinks about himself is the right theology. He can't think wrong thoughts about himself. He can't sin against himself. He's, his theology is perfect, and Jesus Christ came in the flesh and embodied perfect theology. And we've been using other words, really, for theology. Ten years ago it was worldview, now it's meta narrative. And ten years from now, there will be some other word. But it's all theology. And I was excited to announce that we'll be putting a theological library together for those, both men and women, who want to study theology more deeply to have all these references located in one area. We're also going to create a discipleship equipping center a place where we can disciple one another and have resources right there that we can grab and purchase and take home and and read right away, a place where we can gather and talk and read together. So God judges the northern kingdom for bad theology and uses Assyria as his tool of chastisement. Israel became strong under Jeroboam II, but there was no real foundation. So I'll say this again at the end of the sermon, but I want to say it now also. Don't assume that if things are going well in your life, it's because God is pleased with you. It could be. And certainly obeying and trusting God leads to blessings according to God's good will and how He wants to distribute and when He wants to distribute and how much He wants to distribute. But don't assume that if all's going well with you, God is pleased. The northern kingdom, everything was going well with them. They thought God was pleased. They couldn't be further from the truth. We'll see that Assyria thought because their empire was growing that they must be doing everything right. But God was only allowing them to prosper because he was intending on using them as a powerful tool of judgment in his hands, only to later crush them and annihilate them for their wickedness. Don't assume because your neighbor or another nation seems to be prospering that God is necessarily pleased with them. We need to take a sober-minded look at our lives and evaluate our lives in light of the Bible and ask friends and family and our accountability partners to give us an honest evaluation of our life. Even, Even if God is prospering your life, it doesn't mean there isn't any sin to repent of. There's always some sin to repent of. Fortunately, during times of prosperity, we tend to stop looking at ourselves in that way. All is well. God must be completely and totally and utterly pleased with me. And of course, the minute one little thing goes wrong in your life, people assume, oh no, God is angry at me, or oh no, this isn't fair, or oh no, why is this happening to me? We need a bigger view of the world. We need God's view of the world to make sense of the world we live in. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying in the south. and about the year 734 B.C., he prophesies that Assyria will come and conquer the northern kingdom, conquer Samaria, the uh, Capital of the northern kingdom, and that they would even come south into Judah and win some victories in and around Jerusalem, but they wouldn't conquer Jerusalem. Even though they looked like they had the numbers and the power and the will to do it, God would stop them at the gates of Jerusalem. And he tells Isaiah to tell King Ahaz in the south, ask. God for a sign, and He will give you a sign to prove to you that He will protect you. You don't need to go outside Israel and bribe and make unholy alliances with pagan nations to protect you. God will protect you. Well, Ahaz doesn't want to trust God. He, he, he's putting his security in his alliances that he's made, and really putting his security in his own cleverness. My job as king is to make these alliances and protect my nation. Instead of, my job as king is to go to the Lord and humble myself and ask for his protection. And so he feigns humility and he says, Oh, who am I to test God? I won't ask him for a sign. And so God says, Fine, I'll just give you a sign. And that's the famous Emmanuel prophecy we read at Christmas time that unto us a child will be born. That'll be the sign. And the sign is one of those prophecies that has a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. In the near fulfillment, Isaiah's wife has a baby. The word Alma in Hebrew can mean young woman. It can also mean virgin. I believe that when applied to Isaiah's wife, it obviously means young woman. When applied to Mary, future fulfillment, it obviously means virgin. Bible translators have to pick one word, though, in your translation. So they pick the word virgin. But it can also mean young woman. Beautiful name, you probably have an aunt or maybe a a mother or grandmother with the name Alma. Of course, if she's your aunt or your grandmother, the second meaning of that word doesn't make any sense (laughs) anymore. And I won't elaborate. And God says, you will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But neither... Isaiah's baby was named Emmanuel, and Jesus obviously wasn't named Emmanuel. The point being, in both cases, it was proof that God is with us. So, metaphorically, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Well, what does Isaiah name his baby? Anyone know? Bonus points, if you know the name of Andy, I know you. (laughs) <laughs> God tells Isaiah to name your son Mahershalal Hashbaz yeah Ooh, how would you like to have to write that on your paper every day sign your checks Mahershalal wait till you find out what it means swift to the spoils and quick to the booty booty as in the spoils of war. And it was a prophetic name of judgment that Samaria is going to come in and quick to the spoils and hasten to to plunder the northern kingdom. He has a second son and God says, name him Shear-Jeshub, which means a remnant shall return. So you have your first son, God's judgment, your second son, his name, God's mercy. A remnant will return. God's wrath won't rest on Israel forever. So Samaria falls in 722 BC under the reign of Hoshea. Leaders of Israel are taken captive. We learned that last week. God just empties the intellectual capital out of the northern kingdom. All the pagan practices, all the bad theology, all the bad philosophy, all the movers and shakers, they're they're either destroyed or taken captive, and he leaves behind the common farmer to work the land. And other nations come in and intermarry with the Jews who are left creating the Race of the Samaritans. And so when you read in the New Testament about the Samaritans and how much the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans, you know why. Because they were half breeds, they were mixed. They thought they were honoring God by keeping themselves separate from these people who were of mixed race. And yet, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command, and he says, love God and love your neighbor, and the scribe says, well, who's my neighbor, he tells a story about a, a Samaritan fulfilling that command better than the purebred Jews, the good Samaritan. And Jesus approaches the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, uh, a woman with very questionable morals and tells her a day is coming when everyone will worship in spirit and truth. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't matter your background, your nationality. So now back to Isaiah 10. The question then is, why would God allow pagan nations to prosper and persecute his people? Why would God allow a pagan nation, a nation who hates God, is idolatrous, evil, wicked, immoral, cruel? The Assyrians were incredibly cruel warriors. They were known for skinning their victims alive, leaving people impaled on sticks, standing up all over the land by the tens of thousands to send a statement to other nations, don't mess with Assyria. When we talk about God punishing Israel, I think we have a tendency in our minds to bypass the horrors of war and just how ugly and frightful. Because we don't want to think of a God who who would allow such a thing and use it. Because of all the passages about God saying, I'm a father to Israel, we like the metaphor more of a father and his child. Like, Israel needed a time out. Well, in this case, the time out was a devastating war. Sometimes the punishment is a famine, or an earthquake, or locusts. Or drought. Certainly the punishment is always having to live with the natural consequences of our disobedience. Romans 1, God handed them over. What did he hand them over to? Sexual immorality and a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is a mind that can't Think what is good and what is evil anymore. Evil is good and good is evil. So we could say that America's already under the judgment of God. It's not when it's going to come, it's here. The question is how bad is it going to get? How long and how bad will it be before God grants any kind of repentance or revival? to our nation. Don't assume that America's prosperity has anything to do with God being pleased with us. He may just be letting us have enough money to buy some rope (laughs) so we can hang ourselves with it. I think the fear is that And this is echoed throughout the Bible. God, how could these wicked nations prosper? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. God, do something about it. Even down to the individual level, you have the psalmist crying out, Oh God, why does it seem that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And when we see it happening on a national level, it's it's even scarier. It, it, It seems like ISIS is winning. It seems like secular humanism is winning. But that's just what things look like to us when we don't look at the world from God's perspective And we get God's perspective when we read the Word of God. This this is God's perspective. If He didn't speak to us and reveal things to us, we'd never know what was really going on. So He says, the prophet, "Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation." That's an interesting juxtaposition of phrases. Woe to Assyria. We get that. Because they're evil, they're wicked. Woe to them. And yet at the same time, God's calling them the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. So, God is saying, I am using Assyria as my rod of judgment. And woe to them. Because you are going to create, commit great evil against Israel, my chosen people. I am going to use you to punish Israel and you are going to create great wickedness. And there's a tension there. Well, wait a minute, is 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 Assyria to blame if God purposed and chose to use them to punish Israel? No, they're not off the hook. They purposed in their own hearts to attack and destroy and plunder God's chosen people. And God is going to use that evil to accomplish His good purpose, which is to chastise and discipline Israel so that the remnant will repent and return with humble hearts. And so it's this very fascinating and hard-to-grasp concept that God is holding this rod of judgment in his hand to Syria and at the same time saying, and woe to you. I'm using you in ways you don't even understand, and woe to you. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. And again we think about the terror and horrors of war and God how could you how could you do this to Israel Is that the right word Is God doing this to Israel He is But he is not guilty Assyria is guilty And beloved the temptation will be for you and for me to want to protect God's honor by stripping him of his sovereignty. Well, I don't, want to, I don't want God to be responsible for doing that to Israel and all those women and children being trampled and, and taken into slavery. So I'm only going to think about Assyria. Assyria did this. Oh, Assyria thwarted God's will? Are you going to protect God's character by making man more powerful than God? Careful. Which is more damning to God's character? Making him too weak to be able to get Assyria to do what he wants him to do? Or would it be better that you accept the fact that God uses evil to accomplish His good purposes, and yet He is not guilty of committing evil. Man, in our fallenness, and our tendency to want to exalt ourselves, will often choose the former. Man's supposed free will over and against God's sovereignty. Well, if we can't do things that God doesn't want us to do, then our will isn't really free, they say. Oh, and so God's in heaven going, Oh man, so much for plan A. I guess I'll have to resort to plan... There's no plan B's with God. It's all plan A all the time. That is how sovereign he is, how powerful he is, how omnipotent he is. He knows the beginning from the end. All his prophecies come to pass because he he makes them come to pass. I know this is difficult. I have experienced suffering too. And to think that God ordained it and allowed it is hard to swallow. It is a it is a bitter pill to swallow. But I can assure you, the supposed solution is no solution at all. It creates bigger problems. God couldn't stop it from happening? Is is that a God you can trust? That God's no different than I am. And so theologians call it the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving, then why is there evil? Because if he was all-powerful, he would stop it. And if he was all-good and all-loving, he would stop it. So the fact that there's evil in the world must mean that either God's not all-powerful, or he's not all-loving and good. No, there's a third option. He is all-powerful, he is all-good, he is all-loving, and he has a purpose for evil. So evil isn't meaningless. A sinful man brought the evil and wickedness into the world. God is using it to accomplish his will in amazing ways. And one day he will eradicate all evil. Assyria doesn't know that it's being used as the tool of God's chastisement. Remember, they're not reading the scriptures. They think they're The greatest force on earth, this great empire that conquers other nations and exerts its will and nobody can stand in their way. God says, yet it does not so intend. In other words, it's not intending to be a tool in the hands of God. That's not their plan. They weren't thinking, how could we help Yahweh God accomplish His purposes? will go and chastise his people for their wickedness and disobedience. They're not thinking that. Nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. This is such a humbling doctrine because this doctrine teaches us that you and I, when we commit evil, God is using that for good and we don't even know it. When I sin and yell at my children, I'm not saying, I'm going to allow God to use my yelling to teach my kids. No. I'm sinning. I'm not thinking about God in that moment. That's the problem. I'm acting like God. I deserve to be angry. How dare you break my commands and interrupt my agenda. It is so humbling this doctrine. It's not like when we sin, God's like, ooh, I don't want any part of that, I'll just hang out over here. No, he's actively using that sin to accomplish his great purposes. Lesson number one, he may just be using you as an object lesson. Hey, don't act like that fool. That's humbling. In fact, the prideful Assyrian king thinks he's the one who's all-powerful. Now God's going to reveal the king's heart to us. We get to see what's going on in another man's heart. The king of Assyria is saying this, Are not my princes all kings? Like We're so powerful, even our princes are more powerful than other nations' kings. Is not Kalno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? See, they had this warped view of reality that the more idols a nations had, the more powerful they were. And so he went in Syria and conquered nations that had far more idols than Jerusalem or Israel. He thinks that's a good a good thing. He thinks that proves how powerful he is. Look at all their gods. And we conquered them. And since we conquered these nations that had more idols than Israel, it should be no problem conquering Israel. In in Isaiah 1012, you'll notice probably in your Bible the typeset changes. It went from poetry to just narrative. Isaiah, speaking the word of God, says, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. When I'm done using Assyria... I will punish them for their arrogance. Thinking they are so powerful that they conquered Israel on their own. Not acknowledging that the sovereign God of the universe was using them as a tool of punishment. And then again we get back into the the poetry and he reveals the heart of the king of Assyria again. Here's what the king of Assyria is thinking in his heart. By the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding. Remember those words, wisdom and understanding, from last week? Remember God told Israel that when you go into the land and you obey the law of God and you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that will be your wisdom and your understanding. And all the nations will look at you and say, Wow, now there's a people of great wisdom and understanding where did that come from? And you're, you're to say, from the Lord God. And from His Word. And so here's the king of Assyria saying, look at all my mighty deeds. Where did it come from? My wisdom and understanding. And isn't that us so often? When we look upon our accomplishments and we forget God is sovereign. Sovereign. Oh look what I've accomplished because of my great wisdom and understanding. Never thinking that perhaps, not just perhaps, God allowed you to have this accomplishment because that's how it fit together in His sovereign plan. And the king of Assyria says, "I remove the boundaries of the peoples and I plunder their treasures." And I, like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. Like do you see the arrogance is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Comparing the nations he defeated as helpless little birds... I just reached into their nest and took whatever I wanted because that's how powerful I am. Or an all powerful God allowed you to do that for a specific purpose. He completely misdiagnosed the situation because he didn't have God's revelation. Heard a talk online from the Shepherds Conference. You can't get to all the sessions, right? So I'm glad they put them online. Professor at Master's College, Dr. Abner Chow, was talking about the book of Job and that it's really actually most likely the oldest book of the Bible. The oldest book of the Bible. And that the theme of of the book of Job is that something was going on in the heavenly places that... People on earth had no idea it was going on. And Job suffered greatly for God to demonstrate to Satan that Job would still honor God's name and worship him even if his life was falling apart and all the things that we normally associate with praise were taken away from him. And so Job and all of his friends completely misdiagnose what's going on because they don't have God's revelation. And because at the beginning of the story, the writer of Job tells us what's going on in heaven, we get to see what God is doing. And we look at these people on earth and go, oh, they are so far from the truth. They're not even close. They think Job's being punished because of his sin. It's not what's going on at all. And so Dr. Chow said, if it's the oldest book of the Bible, we can think of it maybe as the introduction to the entire Bible, which is this. Without God revealing himself and his plans to us, our guesses will always be wrong. So stop trying to do life apart from the revelation of God. You're going to get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm always going to interpret things in my favor. Out of my pride, unless I'm one of those woe is me, prideful kind of people where I interpret the whole world being against me all the time. They're both prideful. It's a false humility to, to say, oh, woe is me. I never do anything right. I can't accomplish anything for God. So God gives us the true perspective here. Isaiah ten fifteen. He says, "Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it?" Assyria is the axe. Look at me, I took down this tree. <laughs> no, the, the woodsman did. Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it. That would be like a club picking up the person who was picking up the club to hit somebody. That would be like the rod lifting up him who is not made out of wood. That would be like the rod lifting up the flesh and blood that's holding the rod and using it to judge and punish others. It's not the rod, or the club, or the axe, or the saw. It's the person using it. And so the analogy is clear. God is using Assyria. Compared to God, man is like an inanimate object, because he is so powerless compared to God's omnipotence. Even a mighty empire like Assyria compared to God's power, is nothing more than a lifeless axe. And yet, because they are not an inanimate object, Assyria is guilty of the evil it perpetrated against Israel, even though God was using them. Theologians call this view compatibility. God's will is sovereign over man's, and yet man's will, and actions, we are completely responsible for those actions. The, the two are compatible. There's no tension here. There's no parad- There's no conflict. Don't try to re- reconcile them in some other way than the Bible presents. This is what the Bible presents. Accept it by faith. Even if it doesn't make sense to us completely on a human level, it makes sense to God. And you will only land yourself in way more trouble and way more confusion and way more fear and doubt if you try somehow to untangle this. Accept them both by faith. When God is finished with Assyria, He says He will completely eradicate their entire empire Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. This once mighty nation will be like a man with a disease and he can't do anything about it and he's just wasting away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a a young child could write them down. A, A child just learning to count could number Assyria's population. That's how devastating God's judgment will be on Assyria. He allowed them to become this mighty empire to punish his people and then he will deal with Assyria. The prophet Nahum specifically prophesies Assyria's demise. I know your your books of the Bible are not in chronological order, and it's hard to kind of keep track what prophet's prophesying when. That's why I put that poster up in the main hallway. Nahum prophesied, the book of the vision in Nahum of the El, uh, the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who take refuge in him. Remember, this is the, the prophecy of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, but with an overflowing flood he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This great city that Jonah said took three days to walk from one end to the other. God said after he uses Nineveh, after he uses Assyria to do his will, he will completely demolish it. And he did and he says, with an overflowing flood, and that's how he did it. Nineveh had built these huge walls around their city, made of earth. They had dug moats and used the dirt from the moats to build 100-foot-high walls around their city. You think of these ancient civilizations as unsophisticated because we buy into the evolutionary idea. No, these, these men were great architects, And mathematicians, they didn't have bulldozers and dump trucks. They did this by hand. Hundred foot high walls. And then God sovereignly and providentially made the Tigris River overflow its banks. And they had foolishly dug these moats thinking that it would protect their city, but all it did was create a low place for the water to head to. And the flood raised up so high that it it destroyed and disintegrated and crumbled the walls. And in the meantime, God was raising up a bigger fish, the Babylonian Empire. And they swept in and annihilated Assyria. You thought Assyria was cruel. The Babylonians made them look like pikers. And, And, of course, they would eventually sweep in and conquer the southern kingdom as well. And Nahum's prophecy goes on to talk about how the city would be completely hidden. And it was. It it got completely buried in mud and sandstorms to the point where it wasn't until 1842 that modern archaeologists uncovered the city of Nineveh. In what is current-day Mosul in Iraq. God isn't going to turn a blind eye to evil. He may use it to accomplish good purposes for a time, but all evil will be judged eventually. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that ought to be a a frightening statement. The God who can bring utter destruction on an entire empire righteously has the right to judge your sin and my sin. And the only way to escape his judgment is through the cross, through faith in Jesus Christ, who took all that wrath on himself, the flood of God's wrath, so we wouldn't have to. Because we can't. We can't take it. We can't withstand that kind of wrath. Only God himself in the person of the second person of the Trinity could take on God's wrath. God ends his prophecy with good news for for Israel.
1: Now in that day, the
0: remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. They won't put their faith in pagan nations to protect them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And we can take that truth into our own lives and say, if you put your faith in Christ, never again Will you rely on the very thing that struck you down? Your pride and your own sin. Your pride and your accomplishments can't protect you from the wrath of God. In fact, it's the very thing that's bringing the wrath of God on us. But if we truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and ask His forgiveness, and repent and turn from our wicked ways we will be saved. We we will be like the remnant. Because God not only works this way through nations, He works this way through individuals. He not only works through nations this way, He works through the sins of individuals. Remember the story of Joseph in the multicolored coat, coat of many colors? Nathan showed me this week, ha- hat tip to Nathan in, you can talk to him afterward and he could tell you which professor pointed it out to him. Now, this is so amazing and so clear in God's Word. After Joseph's brothers throw him in the pit, sell him into slavery, he goes to Egypt. He becomes the number two most powerful man in Egypt and saves Egypt from famine and surrounding nations from famine. And the brothers come and throw themselves on on the mercy of Egypt for food. After all that happens, and Joseph's ready to reveal himself to his brothers, and he knows they're going to freak out, that he's going to get his revenge on them, he says this, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Here's the view of the situation without God's revelation. By human perspective, you sold me into Egypt. You committed evil. And you lied to our father and said I was dead, and you saw him sink into a deep depression, and you didn't care. For years, Dad suffered. And for all you knew, I was suffering. This is how wicked you are. You did this. You committed evil. You are guilty. Next line. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. There's man and God in the same sentence. Man was doing this, but God was doing this. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting And now this line, only God, no man. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So does that mean that they're off the hook because God purposed to do this? Not at all. Genesis 50-20, the great summary statement of the whole story. As for you, you meant evil against me. You committed great evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So if God was in charge of the whole situation, then is he responsible for the evil? No. You meant it for evil. Man is evil. God meant it for good. God is good. Man evil, God good. Any questions? (laughs) We keep it simple as we close. So in closing, I want you to think about these four points here. Number one, again, prosperity isn't necessarily a sign that God is pleased with you, or even that you earned it. This this attitude of, well, I work really hard, I make all the right choices, and people who are suffering are getting what they deserve. Take heed. Be careful. A haughty spirit comes before destruction. You're starting to sound like the king of Assyria when you talk that way. In God's good purposes, for a time, he's allowing you to be prosperous. And it may be because you are humbling yourself before him and obeying his commands. Not perfectly, though. And if that is your lot today, that God is prospering you, praise Him, thank Him, give Him glory, and use it for eternal things. Invest back into the kingdom. To whom much is given, much will be expected. Maybe if things are going really well, you should be fearful that you have more to give an account for. The man given ten talents turned it into twenty, and the man given five turned it into ten. And the man given one should have turned it into two. But the point is that we're to invest in the kingdom and in eternal things, not use the prosperity and the peace and, and whatever health you're enjoying right now to squander it on yourself. And vacation after vacation after vacation, and hobby after hobby after hobby. Let's get things in balance here. Secondly, suffering isn't necessarily a sign that God is punishing you. It certainly isn't a sign that God isn't at work in the world. When you are enduring suffering or you see great evil in our world, do not fall into the trap of thinking, well, I don't want God to be responsible for that evil, so uh, I'll either get rid of God in my mind, or he's some deist who's just out there and he's not acting in our world, or he's not powerful enough to do anything about the evil, or he doesn't want to interfere interfere with man's free will. I'm so so thankful he interfered with my quote-unquote free will. I'm glad he regenerated my heart so my heart would be bent towards loving Him and obeying Him and loving the things He loves and hating the things He hates. I didn't choose that on my own. He made that to happen in me. So evil is in the world for a time. But Jesus will return and He will eradicate all evil. Amen? Amen. In the meantime, God uses this evil for good. That's the promise of Romans 8.28. It was a long road to get to Romans 8.28, but I want you to know that when people are suffering around you, you need to weep with those who weep and walk a mile in their shoes and don't just throw Romans 8.28 in their faces if that's going to solve the problem. It is the answer. But you have to be ready to accept that answer. Finally, God is good. God is all-powerful. God is love. Therefore, we can trust God's sovereignty completely. We finish where we started this morning. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Father God, teach us to trust and obey. We would trust in Jesus, that He covers our sins, trust, trusting that even when we sin, You are using that to accomplish your good purposes. Help us to not sin presumptuously, knowing that you'll use our sin. Lord, I don't want to be used in that way. I want you to use my obedience for your glory and to work out your good purposes. And so, Father, make this happen for your good name and our good, and we will give you all the praise and glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.